Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this week we're going to be talking about global white privilege, what it is, what its origins are, what its impact is on the world, and how it can be dismantled. And I'm very happy to welcome Chandra Nair, who is the CEO and founder of the wonderfully titled Global Institute for Tomorrow. And he's also the author of a book called Dismantling Global White Privilege, Equity for a Post-Western World. Chandran, thank you very much for joining. Well, thank you for having me. Great pleasure. So why don't we start with um, a definition? Can you tell our listeners how you define global white privilege? Well, thank you, Mark. Um, In the book, I say that white privilege is the best way to understand how oppression, dominance, and even suppression by the Western world and its cultures and institutions is uh, perpetuated and operated within countries and between countries uh, with the key objective of sustaining economic superiority. That's how I define it in in the book. And uh, in terms of the point about its origins, I think if one is a student of history, one will understand that its origins are in the colonization of the world that started about 500 years ago. The sense of innate superiority when other civilizations essentially succumbed uh, to Western civilization, mainly through violence, uh, they succumbed. And the idea that uh, they were bringing culture to others who were inferior and needed to be essentially brought into the modern world. Its origins are also in religion, belief in uh, the, the need to export religion. And of course, as I said, fundamentally today, it's to maintain economic advantage through the control of global systems, resources, and political systems. That's, uh, in short, my definition. Okay. So maybe we can talk a bit about what the impact of global white privilege is. Um, A lot of mainstream histories of international relations see the period since the end of World War II, and particularly the period since the end of the Cold War, as a sort of historically unique period of peace. Um, But in your book, you argue that that's uh, not true and uh, seem to suggest that a lot of that is is simply a a narrative which is sustained by... um, by global white privilege. Can you talk a bit more about that? I think none of us will deny, even if we you know, accept uh, the horrors of the last 20 years, including what's going on in, in Europe, uh, in Ukraine at the moment, that we have enjoyed a, a, a relative period of peace compared to two great wars. But I try and remind people, two great wars were created by Europeans uh, fighting over dominance of the world was not said, created by the Chinese or the Indians or the Africans. So the, the point I'm trying to make in the book is that if we are suggesting that we are in a period of great human uh, enlightenment in the 21st century, or etc., we need to understand that the vestiges of that sort of white privilege born out of colonization is not simply about what we see and triggered the Black Lives Matter movement in in the U.S., which then expanded into Europe, about things that happened in the past and their little pockets of racism and Karens in the world who need to be exposed. 
It's, and it's not just systemic racism in the United States and about racial discrimination or racism. And I wanted to point that out. And the book originated from an invitation by several people I know when the Black Lives Matter movement was um, sort of t gaining global attention that I needed to point out there was this tip of the iceberg of white privilege, and it was not just in the United States. And that the more insidious nature of that white privilege was essentially in its preservation in much more subtle ways. And in the book, I identify those subtle ways. The more unsubtle of the subtle ones is how the domination of the various institutions of uh, so-called global order, peace, etc. So that's really how uh, I see the, the how it's, uh, it is actually beyond a discussion about war and armies and colonization. It's now essentially how globalization is essentially maintained and white privilege is essentially woven into the very fabric of the globalized world. So I'd like to go into that in more detail, but what you just said and, and what you say in the book is, is, is quite a powerful claim because most people look at the sort of post-World War II period as a period of decolonization. The map of the world in 2022 is strikingly different from the map of the world in 1945. There are literally dozens of uh, sovereign nation states that didn't exist um, in 1945 that are now members of the United Nations that can vote on on different issues. But in your book, you seem to imply that that was actually um, not a very important development because um, the the structure of of global white privilege and and white dominance of the world was not altered by the independence movements that, um, that came out. Can you talk a bit more about that? Because that's quite a, quite a radical claim that you're making. I would argue when you say most people, uh, they're actually most people in the West, historians and commentators uh, who think that. And that's a typical flaw in current thinking. Even when we talk about wars today, we say the international community does not support this and that. And is usually... Uh, Europeans and Americans, forgetting that they represent only 15% of the global community. So this sort of language is kind of important. But I'm not in any way suggesting, nor do I argue in the book, that the decolonization of the world was not an important step. But, but let's also understand and agree that decolonization was not done voluntarily. It was fought for by those people who were oppressed. So they took it. And then as the armies left, etc., uh, that was also very important. And then we set up a new global order. And as you say, the world map looks very different from what it looked like in 1948 or 1950. And you're absolutely right. There are lots of sovereign states, etc. And not for once am I suggesting that white privilege is essentially the cause of all the ills of the post-colonized world as well. The point I'm trying to make is that when we look at the issue of white privilege, particularly in the context of people paying so much attention during the Black Lives Matter movement to, you know, just the discrimination of black people, and therefore, why don't we take a, take a knee at a football game, or why don't more black actresses and actors get awards? That is the superficial stuff that is so easy to embrace and gloss over the more insidious stuff. And the insidious stuff I'm talking about, and which I outline in the book, is essentially how the geopolitics of the world is framed. Who runs the World Bank, the, the IMF, how the global financial architecture. So the armies have moved away. I'd argue that the armies are returning to Europe, courtesy of the 
the American military-industrial complex. But the point I'm trying to make here is, let's hope that we do have more peace, that this, this, uh, the, the wars that were being fought will subside and we'll never, we'll never see a world war again. But underneath that is the things I argue about in the book. The so-called rules-based order is not a rules-based order, it's a Western rules order. It's one that the Western world continues to lament uh, is being challenged by countries like China, uh, as, as if uh, the Chinese, the Indians, and the Africans should not have a say in it. The financial architecture of the world. So all of these are the points that I try and make in the book that need to be dismantled because it gives power to, to white people and white nations and white institutions and Western institutions that they should not disproportionately be able to have or to impose on the world. So maybe we can um, look at some of these questions a bit in, in a bit more detail because you've thrown quite a lot of big ideas out there. So your, your first sort of notion is that globalization and all the incumbent elements of it and the institutions which support it are basically about global white privilege. Most people, I think, even in the world, not just in the white world, would say that the biggest beneficiary of the, the last few decades of globalization is probably uh, China rather than uh, the West. In fact, the big anti-globalization uh, movements seem to be um, concentrated in the former imperial powers like the, the UK, which voted for Brexit and uh, the US, which voted for Trump. How, how would you sort of put that within your um, framework for thinking about globalization? Well, clearly that the, the, the globalization of the world uh, was something that no one's going to say is a, is a bad thing. But this, let's take a couple of examples. You say that, uh, and, uh, that China was the biggest beneficiary. Well, China was a beneficiary together with the rest of the world. I mean, you know, Western multinationals, uh, investment banks, made a huge amount of money as China grew as well. China had to right to, of course, grow. But guess what's happened? As soon as China began to look the Western world in the eye and said, here we are, the, the Western world reacted adversely. So the point I'm trying to make here is that as long as China rose, but kept to uh, within the rules of the Western world, so long as it didn't become a competitor, so long as it didn't have technologies that would compete with the Googles, etc., it was all right. But as soon as it became powerful enough to perhaps compete, and that's the point about globalization, compete fairly, then it was a, it was a threat. But the point I'm also trying to make here is that um, the, it's not about the decline of the West as, uh, and that the rise of the others means that, that globalization has worked. Globalization has many contradictions that we all know. But what we do see, and this is the, the thrust of the current tensions we see between the West and the rest, the inability of the West to understand that they will have to concede and share power with the rest of the world and that inability to share power, which is, the, in my view, the root cause of all the tensions led by the United States, is because it understands if it shares power, it begins to relinquish its sort of primary position in the global economic system. It wants to write the rules, etc. And if, I give, if you can give me one more minute, just to look at the financial world, for instance. 
All the gatekeepers of the financial systems are essentially Western banks, uh, Western accounting firms, the audit firms, the, uh, the, the rating agencies. So I was speaking to a whole bunch of international business leaders uh, in Asia who are based in Hong Kong and elsewhere just yesterday. And they all admitted that as much as they understand that, these, uh, that the Western powers have so much um, that controls what they do, they don't know how they are going to reverse this. And the point is that if you want to do an IPO of a company out of Hong Kong, you, don't, you, don't, you can't go to a Singaporean or Malaysian audit firm and say, can you do our books? You have to go one of four. They're all led by Anglo-Saxons. So another kind of question is, I mean, there's no doubt that one of the building blocks of the civilizing mission of, um, of a lot of Western empires was something which was racially defined. And, and I'm not for a second discounting the, the persistence of racism and the importance of race as a, as a way of structuring not just power within our own societies and at a global level. But it's also not the only dividing line. And it'd be interesting to, to hear why you think it's so much more important than other ones. I mean, you know, you talk a lot about the tension between the West and the rest, but there's quite a lot of tension within the West. You know, China and India literally came to blows a few months ago um, along the border between the two countries. The Indians seem even less keen on China rising than the US does in, in some respects. The Japanese are also very unkeen about China's rise, as are Vietnamese and Filipinos. And there are all sorts of tensions between uh, non-white uh, powers. They're also, I think, uh, huge differences in class, which haven't disappeared, even if Karl Marx is less popular than he was uh, a century ago, a lot of the trends which he was talking about, which come about from the the, um, the contradictions in capitalism that you mentioned earlier, uh, seem to be more rather than less prevalent. And also, you know, there are lots of racial divisions within the um, the non-white world. There's a you know some of the most racist countries I've ever been to are not white countries. In fact, there's a lot more racism in India, in China, in places like that than there is in, in a lot of Anglo-Saxon countries where there are very active debates about racism, which just are not present in China, for example. Could, can you sort of maybe talk a bit more about how you see these other divisions fitting into your worldview and why you think the split between white and non-white is, is so much more important than the other divisions? So um, thanks for that. Uh, firstly, can I say that they are very honest and open discussions in China, India, etc., about racial, uh, racial and religious uh, um, inequalities and uh, discrimination too. That's something that I want to put on the record. People think they they aren't these discussions. It's a very... China. You can get put in prison for having some of the discussions that we're having on this podcast. That is not true. If you talk about Tibetans and Uyghurs and their rights in the way that people talk about different minorities in the Anglo-Saxon world, the consequences are a lot harsher you, you, uh, than being cancelled or whatever the, the consequences are in, in Western society. That's not a digression. I, I, I think it is actually not a digression. It's, it's quite an important... Let me try and answer that question then. So firstly, in the book, I make it explicitly clear that the issue is not simply about race. The issue I talk about is essentially the economic power that is essentially controlled and confined and the rules that are being set by former colonies 
essentially Western civilizations, to continue to dominate the world. I also make it explicitly clear that other countries, and you've pointed out correctly, suffer from huge amount of social injustices based on race and religion, and that would include China, India, etc., and all of those countries. The book is not about how other countries have uh, racial and religious differences and discriminate. I'm the first to say, I come from Malaysia. There's institutional racism of the Malay elites. The book is about a much more uh, sophisticated form of essentially dominance, and I've called it white privilege. And in that sense, as I defined earlier, it's about how Western cultures and institutions and governments continue to operate and maintain control in order to perpetuate economic superiority and write the rules of the game. Uh, right? And that's the point I'm trying to make. Every non-Western uh, non, uh, uh, person who, who has looked at the affairs of the world feels the pain of this continued uh, domination. In my view, this harm that is inflicted on other people, and I go through many examples of spheres of life and the way the world is organized, is essentially harmful to Western civilization. And I think it will continue to bring it into conflict with the rest of the world. And I would add, that doesn't mean I'm suggesting that the rest of the world doesn't have a lot to fix as well. I'm talking about the ability, for instance, the United States and its European allies to impose sanctions on all of those that he sees as his enemies. When uh, the Russians uh, invade Ukraine, apparently all of us support, support the United States and its allies to sanction the Russians. When the Americans are responsible for the deaths of thousands and thousands of uh, people in the Middle East, where were the pious Europeans and Americans? Uh, because none of us can impose sanctions on them. None of them can disqualify them from the Olympics. It's always the others, and that's the power. Can we maybe, given the, how central the Ukrainian discussion is to, to the world at the moment, can you maybe talk a bit more about how you see that? So you're saying that the West assumes that other countries will support their sanctions, but how do you see um, this conflict uh, in terms of the framework that you laid out in your book? Well, I've written a couple of pieces about it, uh, but uh, fundamentally, let's start by saying all wars are bad. Uh, every person who dies is, uh, is a loss, a dear loss uh, to their families, uh, to their societies, etc. And so it's, it's awful. Uh, but the piece I wrote basically argued that it's so interesting that the whole world is focused as if the Ukraine war is the most severe war that is being fought or has been fought in the world since 1945. It is not. It's a tragedy, it's awful, and things need to be done. But where was the world, the Western world in particular, when the war crimes were being committed in, in Iraq? What about the war crimes in, uh, in Libya, Afghanistan? So the rest of the world, and to your European audience, looks at this and says, my God, double standards, here we come again. And when it refers to the rest of the world must support it, the rest of the world didn't support its invasion of Iraq, Iraq Afghanistan, etc. Nor do they want to support uh, and take sides in this conflict in Europe between Russia well, and the West. European countries didn't support the war in Iraq. Germany and France didn't support the war in Iraq. I mean, half of the EU didn't support the war in Iraq. 
it's definitely true that that if that there's you know a lot of hypocrisy um uh you know it's an intrinsic feature of of, of international relations and foreign policy and i don't think there's a single country that's not deliberately hypocritical quite frequently but very but, few countries um, inflict as much harm as the western military alliance what i find interesting is is firstly that that um that you're banding all of the west together whereas actually iraq's a very good example of some countries supported iraq iraq war a lot of non-european countries and non-white countries supported the iraq war most of the middle eastern countries were quite in favor of the iraq war um, a lot of them were against it. You know, Iran was against it. Saudi Arabia was in favor of it. Germany was was against it. Uh, Britain was in favor of it. Um, and and this war, see, you know, that you can be for or against it, but it's it's obviously a war that's in Europe. So therefore, it's not that surprising that it will be quite interesting to European countries who are taking millions of refugees from, and maybe. For that reason, it is more impactful on them than the war in Afghanistan or in Libya, which is further away and which generates less direct implications. For that reason, no doubt, you know, if you live in Africa, a conflict in the DRC is going to be more interesting. The DRC doesn't become global news day in and day out. And a conflict in the DRC doesn't have the United States and Europeans saying, which side are you on? So, for instance... You know, China and India have uh, decided that they are not going to take sides. You will know that the Europeans and the Americans have used that to target China and say it's essentially supporting Russia. Yeah. The Chinese do not want to get involved. They, this is not their war. The Indians, for the first time, have taken a position which is similar to the Chinese and came under a huge amount of criticism from the Europeans and the Americans for not taking sides. So when the Europeans and the Americans say the international community, that's misleading, that's a lie. The international community, of course, sympathize with, the, with the, the tragedy that's going on. But they know that this is not as simple as just the Russians invaded Ukraine and these are good guys and bad guys. We know from our history of colonization that essentially the West has played a, 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 the same old game of divide and rule. And last week only, we had Joe Biden here essentially claiming that uh, the Americans would essentially go to war on behalf of Taiwan. Extremely irresponsible statements at a time when the world is essentially in such great conflict. Just stick with Ukraine for a second, because a lot of people, including, for example, the Kenyan ambassador to the UN, looks at this as a, as a post-colonial war with Ukraine having declared independence in 1991, trying to build its sovereignty. The Russians not being happy with Ukraine as an independent country and therefore trying to reincorporate it into Russia, going back to a kind of former imperial form. Um, it would be interesting to hear whether you think um, that that is convincing or because you, you seem to imply that being against the war in Ukraine is somehow about defending global white privilege, whereas actually, you know, some people say, actually, it's not my war. It's a war within the kind of white world. It's got nothing to do with me. Other people say, actually, this is it's not like the Iraq war. This is a kind of colonial war where a former colonial center is trying to stop another country becoming independent. It might not be that important for me because I don't live near Ukraine, but still kind of clearly as echoes of, of other kind of wars. I mean, it'd be interesting to hear how you kind of see it. 
uh, not for once have I tried to get myself entangled in a discussion about the war in, in, in Ukraine by suggesting it's a war about white privilege. Not at all. I've only uh, suggested that the, the media representation, and there's lots of information now, and in fact, sadly, rather than sort of looking at the, the tragedy that's occurred, in much of the non-Western world, much of the discussion has been about the hypocrisy of the Western media in painting out to this to be the worst tragedy that's ever happened, yet remaining almost silent about things uh, in terms of civilian deaths, about what happened in, in Yemen, uh, Iraq, etc. So the point I, I would make is uh, I try and not get involved. This is not about white supremacy and white privilege. But in terms of the media narratives, I cite that as an example of that. But in terms of your point about whether it's a colonization, uh, decolonization war, you might be right. And we all know that the history of that part of the world is extremely, uh, extremely complex. But one thing that you've left out, which most other parts of the people in other parts of the world understand, because we are constantly under this sort of uh, threat of military expansion, is that NATO essentially continued to essentially threaten Russia by moving forward. You will know better than I do because this is your area of study, etc. about the not one, one inch further. And all of that essentially in the rest of the world, and I'm, I'm not claiming to be an expert, is seen as continuing to threaten and intimidate the Russians to the point where they did whatever they did, which I consider a bad move. But that aspect, if you, you ask me for my opinion, is well understood in other parts of the world as the American NATO alliance continuing to seek to dominate militarily and threaten the Russians. And so they made, in my view, a very bad move. But that too is what needs to be part of the discussion. I don't really want to, to get into a big fight about that, but I would just simply say for the record that many people uh, in Europe at least would see a very different set of effects, countries which used to be part of the Soviet Union and the Soviet Empire, um, in order to, to be sovereign again, have sought to join NATO because they didn't trust uh, Russia to uh, respect their sovereignty. And in that sense, they're quite similar to a lot of countries in Southeast Asia and in Asia, which have sought American protection against China. Be very careful about pointing out the idea that the Americans are essentially sought rather than the American influence being one of bullying other nations into having them uh, in their backyard is a very much more nuanced discussion to be had. Well, it, it's a discussion that we can definitely have. But can you talk a bit about what this post-Western world would look like then? Well, a post-Western world will look like one in which we do not have essentially everything that is seen as um, laying, the, laying the rules down as being led by the, the Western world. We will not have a world in which Europe and, um, or Europe and uh, uh, the United States uh, are petrified by the rise of another power called China. A post-Western world will look like one in which when the rankings in the FT about the best business schools in the world uh, are made, they're not all Western business schools. A post-Western world will look like in which the IMF chief, whether it's a woman or not, is not a European. It's uh, a person of a substance who is the best to, to do that world. A post-Western world in the sports arena will look like one in which 
the 35 or 36 international sporting organizations are not essentially all domiciled in, in Europe, except for one. Uh, I'm not sure if you'd, uh, you're aware of that. So the post-Western world is one in which there will be a lot more sort of, compl uh, lot more sort of diversity of media views and views from other parts of the world are not dismissed as coming from undemocratic systems. A post-Western world will also look like one in which we have plurality of political systems. And just because it doesn't align with the Western democratic system as defined by the West, doesn't mean it's illegitimate. So that's what I think a post-Western world would look like. And there are many ways to, uh, to expand on that list. And what would, ge what would geopolitics look like then? I mean, how, you know, um, would you have uh, a more fragmented world with institutions like the Asian Investment and Infrastructure Bank sitting alongside Western ones? Would it be divided in, in, into kind of Western, non-Western things? Or would you have, I mean, would you go for universal institution? How would, what's your kind of vision for, for how the world should be run? That's a good one. So a post-Western post world does not be, need to be a fragmented one. In the Western world, anything that essentially arises from other parts of the world, which are in competition with it, are seen to be somehow eroding the rules-based order. You know, to have uh, the AIB is not to fragment the system. The World Bank is essentially an American institution. It's run, run, run by the West. It's a president is always an American. So the post-Western world will be one in which I said plurality of organizations, institutions, more international competition, less fearfulness of the established institutions to embrace others. We couldn't have an international uh, Arab bank uh, with the money that uh, uh, they have to spend in different parts of the world. So it would be one in which the institutions themselves are not dominated by the West, and it would be ones in which the West cannot continue to decide who are the good and bad guys and impose sanctions using the extraordinary privilege, exorbitant privilege of the dollar, uh, which then the Europeans all support to punish anyone that is seen as essentially not an ally of the West. We will have perhaps different rules by which the grand bargain, which was the Bretton Woods uh, 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 arrangement, is not now weaponized by essentially one nation uh, and its allies to essentially thwart uh, anyone else that has a different position. So it's a lot more, more diverse, not fragmented, cooperative, but not run by essentially the tyranny of a small group of nations. So maybe that's the last question I can ask you. What do you think, because we're a, a European think tank working on European foreign policy, what do you think Europe needs to do in order to manage its, uh, its decline and to create space for... Um, for the rest of the world? How can Europeans be uh, allies in dismantling global white privilege? Should they be, or, or is this gonna happen anyway as other people fight for their rights? I mean, the first thing I'd say is, um, no one wants to see a decline of Europe in terms of the, the ability of the European civilization, cultures and societies, and Americans uh, to contribute to a better world. What I am talking about dismantling is not about decline. It's essentially self-help. The Europeans, in my view, uh, uh, particularly to your point about think tanks, I think are too tethered to the American way of thinking. So few Europeans are willing to speak up against American hegemony. So yes, you are right that when the Iraq war was, uh, was conducted, etc., uh, Germany and France opted out, etc., 
but there remain strong alliances with the Americans. So I, for one, have never understood, and I've lived in Europe for seven, eight years, never understood why the Europeans, I sort of understand Second World War and all of that, but I never understood why, despite the bad behavior, the wars, the military sort of over, uh, overreach of the, uh, the Americans, the, the Europeans felt somehow they had to support them. And I think the real important thing for think tanks in Europe is to start to carve out their own thoughts uh, and foreign policy. And I've argued that part of the mistake, in my view, of what hap what's happened in Europe at the moment with Ukraine is the Europeans outsource their security to the Americans and NATO. And this happened. And therefore, uh, you can say a belligerent uh, Putin acted in the way he thought he needed to in his imagination about the aggression of NATO. He didn't have any adult in the room in Europe to speak to. And coincidentally, I'm always thinking, hmm, it happened three months after Angela Merkel left. So think tanks in Europe, I think, should reach out to Asia, reach out to Africa, and start to carve out a niche that is quite independent of the American foreign policy and its think tanks, which are so subservient to essentially the patriotic sort of discourse in the United States. Independence would be a good thing in Europe for think tanks. Okay, well, we, we're out of time um, now, so I can't pick you up on some of your accounts of how the war in Ukraine happened and where we got here. But um, it's been really interesting talking to you. We've got one thing left to do on the, on the podcast, Chandran, which is our bookshelf segment. What's on your bookshelf at the moment? Uh, many books, but I thought the book that I would uh, recommend, given my view that we have to have narratives that are different, and so many narratives from the non-Western world are not heard about. And so I come from Southeast Asia, and the overarching event of my youth days was the Vietnam War. And all around the world, even today, people talk about the heroism of the American soldier. And I want to say that that is only part of the truth, as I said. And all the books most people know about would be uh, written from the American lens. So here's a book for people to read. It's essentially the, the translated account of the diaries of a Viet Cong a soldier nurse, a young woman of 23 who got killed, serving her country, fighting the enemy. The, the enemy was the American was John McCain and all of those people. And it's called Last Night I Dreamt of Peace. It's very teary. And if you read it, maybe for once, we will empathize with the enemies of the Americans who are not bad people and not commies. Okay, well, we'll put up a link to that publication and to Chandran's book on our website at uh, www.ecfr.eu slash podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please do head to whatever platform you use to download the podcast on and subscribe. And while you're there, why don't you give us a positive review and a five-star rating because it will help other people come to the podcast. This is a six-star mark, I mean, for sure. Thank you very much. Um, and for now, from Chandra Nair and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFL's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal. The editor of this episode is Lenny Muller.